Morning, everyone. Morning. This morning when I arrived, the, uh, the Abbott and Royce and Vicki were preparing the altar for the, um, the Buddha's birthday. And Gail and Roshi said, happy birthday, Trisha. <laughs> <laughs> and that really is the idea. It is all of our birthday because we're all, we all have this awakened mind. It's all, that's what it means. So it's a, it's a wonderful day to celebrate today. And I hope you can all stay for that after the <clears throat> brief discussion we'll have. So nice to see you, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, um, as the first talk that I'll give as an official shuso, I uh, was asked to give a way-seeking mind talk. And um, I thought about Dogen's being time. And so I'll read a little bit from what he says in that fascicle. He urged his students, know that in this way, there are myriads of forms and hundreds of grasses throughout the entire earth. And yet each grass and each form itself is the entire earth. The study of this is the beginning of practice. This image of grasses is one of the favorites of the old Zen teachers. It carries a world of meaning, but one of them is the multiplicity of all these little plants that make up a blanket covering the earth. So they're many and one at the same time. When I'm talking about the arising of my way-seeking mind, I hear, I, I'm looking at it like one of these little grass seedlings in a vast field. Dogen says, to study this is the beginning of practice. There are three key ways of seeing time that Dogen urges against in this fascicle. One, that there's an axis of irreversible distance between single moments of time. So that idea that it's, it's like a linear thing and you can't go back, just ineluctably keeping on going forward. And then secondly, that one's personal consciousness is the center of the world and that the shape one has, has is determined by the position of the I in the world, the subject in the world. And three, that the whole world is relevant only to the extent that it engages the individual consciousness. So these are all ways that we don't wanna look at time. He's urging us not to look at time. He uses this hyphenated word being time to keep the idea of our existence and the, and the idea of time together. It contains the past, present and future. Moments are contained within each other. So I'm thinking about that in terms of what the arising of the way-seeking mind 
where that comes from. And um, it's all one. It's all in this very moment right now. It's not, not far in the past. If I read a way-seeking mind every year, I would need to explore a different spark each time. Um, maybe each week, if I wrote it, <laughs> maybe each moment, <laughs> you'd have to do that. So this morning, though, I thought I'd go back to the twisted karma that brought someone raised by two generations of fundamentalist Christian preachers to be a Zen priest. The, um, to do that, I want to insist that what seems like a radical discontinuity is actually just one practice in a dynamic flow of practice. That, that's why I'm using Dogen's fascicle Uji or being time this morning. While we're used to making distinctions among religious practices and even among our own phases in our life, it's, um, it's also good to see the interpenetration of them in the present moment. So the early years of my childhood, um, and these are quite, really, it are the early years until I was seven, were spent very much in that church of my parents and grandparents. My father was a young man who was only 24 when, he, when I was born, and he and my mother were living lives fully immersed in their vision of um, spiritual service. His father was a preacher. And he was on his way to becoming one. My father was. In fact, by that time, I, by the time I was three, he and my mother had decided to go to Australia as missionaries. And they were, um, they had three small children. I was only three. And um, the, my younger sister was one. And they had adopted, they just had adopted three older children. And um, they were like, that's okay, we'll still go to Australia <laughs> with all these six children. Um, they had um, both been educated only to the high school level and um, had never been on airplanes. Um, they had only been out of the country one time in their lives to go to Mexico, to Monterey, Mexico for their honeymoon. And so um, they bravely set off. Uh, they didn't see a difference between their daily lives and the um, life of raising a family and um, their spiritual life of what they saw as directed by God. My father had grown up going to church three times a week. My mother had two. There were two different sects of, um, of uh, fundamentalist Christians, but they both had that kind of it's everyday kind of thing. Um, he would have, my father would have seen his own father serving the community. Um, his father worked for Exxon, but he spent all his time outside of his job doing this kind of service, meeting with people, um, studying constantly, and um, preparing for his sermons. Um, and um, they, there was this kind of urgency that they both felt in the need for salvation and to get everybody on board with that. Um, so proselytizing, which means trying to convince other people to join your faith, was um, 
the, the driving impetus of their lives. My grandfather never rested if there was one more person to save. Um, I remember when he was 95, he was in a hospital. We thought he was going to die then, but he lived longer in a hospital room, just pestering the nurses, just constant, just couldn't let it go. Um, and um, wanted to make sure that he, they under, that, you know, questioning them about their religious understanding. Um, he and my father had a vision of the truth with a big T, single, tr single, singular thing. And his mission in life was to make one more person understand his accepted truth. Um, he thought that if he neglected to proselytize one person, his whole life of service was for naught. Um, so they were living in what seems to be now a very small world. They were living in small towns in Texas among people who were very much like they were, very segregated world of, of uh, working class people, white people. Um, the most foreign thing to them was a Catholic. <laughs> um, I don't think they thought about Judaism at all, except um, that was Jesus's original <laughs> religion. And I don't think they ever, ever thought about Buddhism. <laughs> so while some of this, uh, those ways of describing their lives make them seem narrow, and I could list many other ways that make it seem like a narrow existence, I also know that they had a deep and broad sense of the grand scheme of things. Um, my father's faith seemed ever present and his sense of righteousness was always certain. We had returned from Australia and lived in Corpus Christi for five years. And then my parents bought a parcel of land in Victoria and we moved on to it. When we were living out there, if we were building fences, we would be stringing barbed wire between these cedar posts. And if it threatened rain, my father would start praying aloud. <laughs> and he would ask God to give him 30 more minutes <laughs> and um, to finish the job. And um, it, it always seems like it worked. <laughs> um, if we were driving on the country roads and we were low on gasoline, um, he, he was at that point building uh, communication towers. These, these, you can see the red flashing lights at night for television and radio. And if we were about to run out of gas, you would pray just, just a few more miles till we get to the gas station. So it was just a constant thing. And I um, used this kind of prayer myself in my, uh, constantly in my girlhood. So I was always in urgent need of help. <laughs> If I got into trouble with my mother for Trump for lying or neglecting my chores or disrespect, disrespecting her or coming home late from play, sometimes she would threaten me to tell my father when he got home. And I would stand in the bathroom staring in the mirror and just pray fervently. <laughs> Please don't let her tell him. <laughs> um, to keep her from telling him when he got home that afternoon. And I sometimes remember standing there, just my face just scrunched up with such anguish, uh, hearing him enter the house and hearing my mother greeting him and just like, 
ladies don't, you know. <laughs> um, so I would strain to hear whether she had told him of my wicked deed. Um, the first time I remember being in a Buddhist temple was uh, I was in uh, living in China at the time. And it was in Tenton, which is um, in the northeast coast of China. Uh, a friend of mine went for the weekend. We were living in Beijing, and Tianton is not very far from there. And uh, we took a train there. So by then, I had long since discontinued my, my, my connection to the family church. And I really, um, so from that, in that time period, I had attended from infancy to seven when my parents abruptly left the church. And that's another story. <laughs> um, and then again, when I returned to the church for about two years, this is a period of time when my father, right before my father passed away in when I was 20. So I gradually stopped going uh, when I realized I just didn't fit there. I did not fit at all. And um, I wanted a spiritual home where I could be my full self, um, where all of me was welcome. The so-called good and the so-called wholesome and the so-called not so good. So when we went to that temple in China, um, my friend Siren and I entered the grand gate of that temple and it was spring and just, it just like a movie, it was so beautiful. Their white flowers were falling from the trees in the courtyard and there was a priest, a smiling monk who was sweeping up the, the petals and he gestured for us to make ourselves at home and enter the Buddha hall. Um, I didn't know what I was seeing when I went inside. I didn't understand what I was looking at, but I saw multiple altars, not just one and uh, not just the Buddha altar. Now I imagine it must have been a Kuan Yin altar, uh, statues of guardian deities maybe, um, any number of other altars to Bodhisattvas. And I was really struck by the fact that uh, while there was clearly a central Buddha altar, it was a different kind of center and um, from one that I'd ever experienced before. And I could see people coming in and lighting incense at the different altars. And I really liked that idea. It, it felt very good to me. So it, I felt very attracted to this center within, within a circuit of other centers. The occasion of the seeker's need was what brought them. And um, they went to the particular altar that they felt um, would give them the greatest aid. So it was still a number of years before I found my way to Buddhist practice. It's so funny because I, in, from that time in China, I was so drawn to temples. I, I was constantly visiting temples and taking pictures. I remember one time my friend, one of my friends from the university said, you, you visit one set Buddhist temple, you, you visit all of them. I was like, <laughs> I just couldn't imagine. I still can't imagine. <laughs> um, so I kind of realized it was a thing of mine, not everybody's. Um, and uh, 
I remember getting when I was back in the States and I had all these pictures around my apartment. Somebody came in one time and said, oh, are you a Buddhist? And I was like, I don't know why you think that. I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I truly had not thought that until she said, I see all these pictures everywhere. Um, so I it was in China in 97 and 98, a one year period. And um, I didn't start searching active. I was reading and, and looking, but not but very in a very, I guess, lazy way. I just didn't expect to find anything. I really didn't think I would um, until one time a friend of mine saw Galen Roshi speaking somewhere and said, I think you need to go see her. <laughs> <laughs> and it was still two more years. I was quite the skeptic to come. And also just scared of coming to a new place. And that's, it's just scared, scary to come into a new place. I see that. So it wasn't until 2009, uh, I came in one day and Linda, I was wearing all bright white and I think orange, I was very uh, <laughs> shorts. What was I thinking? I don't know how I did that. Um, and uh, Linda Galleon was giving a talk on small adjustments and um, I felt at home right away. I just, it, it felt very good. And um, I didn't know the forms in the Zendo. I didn't know anything, but I, I felt um, I felt at home. And I, I'm still just immensely grateful to have been welcomed for all of who I am. Many, many times, you know, many times being welcomed, being fussy. And Gail telling me, I like it when you're fussy. <laughs> Who would like that? I don't understand that. So it's amazing is to, be, to be in a place where your practice can thrive, where you're fully welcomed, fully welcomed. So Dogen addresses this process in being time when he says, to fully actualize the entire world with the entire world is called thorough practice. So the entire world of my experience is the very substance and action of actualizing the entire world in which I live. Nothing is relegated to the outside and nothing is more or less appropriate for the inside. Dogen insists on the oneness of mind and time. He says, the way-seeking mind arises in this moment. The way-seeking mind arises in this mind. It is the same with practice and with attaining the way. Thus, the self setting itself out in array sees itself. We can probably all think of moments in our lives when we were alive to the urgent questions of practice. I remember many times in those five years of living on the land with the, when, when the family was living out there um, of, of these questions arising and burning in me. One vivid moment was standing out in the pasture with my father. I found it so painful that things should change. I can't remember what the occasion was. I mean, it could have been somebody had passed away or I'm not sure what it was, but I remember saying, you know, what's the deal with change? <laughs> I, I don't know how I said it. <laughs> and he said, kid, you're going to have to accept it. <laughs> um, he said, 
all of life is change. And such simple words, but it's so clear. He was just totally sure. And I like, what? How could that be? And I remember standing there speechless, uh, the clouds moving across the sky behind his head as I was looking up at him. I couldn't grasp it. And it meant losing what I wanted to hold on to. Um, I still can't grasp it. I, I still wish people would stay. Um, at least the ones I want to stay. <laughs> um, and, and that things would stay the same. At least the things that I feel like I can rely on. So I'm pretty sure that that moment was a moment of the way seeking mind. And I was looking for a way to accommodate this painful sense of discontinuity in my life. And maybe that set me on a path and maybe some earlier thing, there's no telling, that was quite twisted in its winding ways. So part of that path is standing up right in the midst of what I have an impulse to run away from or to fix and change to suit my own desire and comfort. Um, Dogen says, vigorously abiding in each moment is the time being. Do not mistakenly confuse it as non-being. Do not forcefully assert it as being. When I think of standing there in shocked realization that I was going to have to accept impermanence, that that was the deal with growing up, I realized my father was quietly revealing the Dharma truth to me. It can't be escaped, as Dogen says, vigorously abide in it. I can still see that practice in my life. It's never resolved. For example, I've gotten this, this is a random example, but I've gotten into this very bad habit of, of um, missing this particular afternoon meeting at work just skipping out. Um, <laughs> it's been going on quite a while. And I, I really am waiting for somebody just to tell me you can't do this before I stop <laughs> skipping. I mean, truly, hopefully they won't hear me. <laughs> so the, the new person who's in charge of things decided that the best time to hold meetings was after the nine hour day. <laughs> um, and I happened to get out early that day, two whole hours early. So it mean I have to go and then come back or stay longer. And I just can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> that night is my Japanese class. And so there are all kinds of reasons. I'm just like, no. <laughs> uh, so when the meetings were on Zoom, I could manage to attend. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I was doing what I wanted to do, but now the meetings are face-to-face, -face, and so I find myself just scurrying around to try to find a way out. Um, I, I certainly have not been vigorously abiding <laughs> in the reality of that situation. Um, so is such a trivial matter as wholeheartedly attending meetings at work part of our Dharma life? I, ha I have a feeling that they are. <laughs> um, and and um, so is reckoning with our habits of escape and avoidance. So Dogen wrote about the time of our practice as a flow that includes the seen and the unseen. He insisted that our effort is integral to the flow. 
that without our effort, nothing would flow. He wrote, the time being is entirely actualized without being caught up in nets or cages. Devas and heavenly beings appearing right and left are the time being of your complete effort right now. The time being of all beings throughout the world in water and on land is just the actualization of your complete effort right now. All beings of all kinds in the visible and invisible realms are the time being actualized by your complete effort right now. All beings of all kinds in the visible and invisible realms are the time being actualized by your complete effort flowing due to your complete effort. And then he adds, closely examine this flowing. Without your complete effort right now, nothing would be actualized, nothing would flow. So the effort we apply when we engage wholeheartedly with what arises moment by moment is the very stuff of our practice. When we engage in temple cleaning, we're training in this wholehearted effort so we can take it into our daily lives and practice it in all the different ways that we're called upon to practice it. When we bend down to use our hands to move the Zabatan instead of moving, moving it with our feet, we're wholeheartedly actualizing our practice. When we stop to bow and turn our whole body to the person who's bow, whom we're bowing to, we're exerting the complete effort right at that moment. Dogen was talking about practice enlightenment, the flow that includes us in this awakened nature of everything. When we hear him talk, talking about devas and heavenly beings practicing with us and all beings on water and on land, he's letting us know that it's all one piece and it depends on our engagement. The rituals of my parents' church were comforting, but I do, not, I do remember feeling that there would be no way at all to be wholly good. The, I remember the pews where we sat, they were this silky uh, smoothness because people had scooted across them so many times over the years. They were very well sanded and shellacked. And um, you could sit slide across. <laughs> um, and they were warm from long sitting during the opening prayers and songs. This was the site of my most challenging encounters with that elusive presence that my family called God. Uh, I was sandwiched between the warm bodies of my mother and sister looking past the bald head of Mr. B in front of us uh, toward the men who were preparing the communion. Only men were allowed to do that. And I would think of all the ways I had failed to be, the activities I had failed to refrain, it, to, to refrain from, the things I had failed to stop myself from saying or thinking. Uh, then the communion tray would come. First, the wafers, they looked like little soda crackers that they were, um, uh, they tasted different because they didn't have salt. So it, you could tell the difference between the holy ones and the ones at home. <laughs> so I would break off a tiny bit of it and I would put it in my mouth and let, the, let it rest there where I'd work away at it with my front teeth. 
trying my hardest not to sin even in that moment. <laughs> um, and then the second tray came with the grape juice that was a portion of these tiny little cups. And my mother would hold it while I took my cup and drank, and I would hold it for my sister. And I would, I would um, keep it in my mouth, savoring that sweet purity. And, but I never felt pure, even as I felt the liquid move down my throat. If I was told at that moment of taking the communion that I was free of sin, I never believed it. I never felt that it was possible. As soon as I tried to be good, my mind would conjure up something that was not good. <laughs> uh, for me, trying to live inside that dualistic morality was painful. It has stayed with me despite my wish to heal that divide. So I've been enjoying the spring this, uh, thoroughly, despite the allergies that have come up because of it. Um, I was telling the group yesterday that blooming trees are one of my favorite things in the world. Such a pleasure. It lasts for just a week or two each year. Um, in my garden at home, I've planted a few small trees. And each week in, in the spring, I get home from work and I go out and put, look to see if the little buds have opened, if, they're, if they actually survive the winter. Um, it's so amazing when they do. I just feel like letting everybody know they did survive. They're so beautiful. So to think of those trees being dormant all winter and then suddenly bursting out with new leaves. I always relish the idea of being free enough from work that I can witness each new sign of spring uh, closely. Uh, this spring, we're starting this practice period. It's a time of turning the light inward to see ourselves. We can all apply this, the degree of effort that feels right so that we can deepen our practice just as the earth is sending out these lovely new signs of life. Dogen said, mind is the moment of actualizing the fundamental point. Words are the moment of going beyond, unlocking the barrier. Arriving is the moment of casting off the body. Not arriving is the moment of being one with just this, while being free from just this. In this way, you must endeavor to actualize the time being. When I think of the roots of my practice and my parents' and grandparents' religious life, I wonder what's left in me of all that steeping in the culture of guilt and sin and return and protection. I usually think the hard judgments are a curse, that the sweet superstitions are a weird kind of blessing. Feeling so at home in the world, so at its center as to feel its focus is earnestly and urgently on me being upright in my doings because someone besides myself was keeping track, uh, assuming every action had a significance beyond the practical, it's all still there with me. There's a habit in Zen centers of introducing people according to how long they've been practicing Zen. And it's good also to realize that all of us have started our practice from myriad causes and conditions long before we came in the doors here. 
when we enter Zen practice, we plant seeds in the rich soil of our experience. We learn to notice the karmic effects of all these previous moments of awareness. May our practice together actualize the unfolding of the Dharma.